Scripture reading today is from Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Amen. Great to have you here with us today. One more thing before we get going. Uh, This morning, uh, we're also sort of celebrating the the changing of the guard, the rotation back in MKIDS. And so we want to acknowledge, first of all, those of you who have served in the fall and the spring, and just to say thank you for doing that. Let's give them a hand, all our MKIDS folks. And also uh, acknowledge uh, a new round of folks who are stepping in to to teach and serve our children over the the course of the summer uh, in their classrooms. We've got a list of folks here. I think there's just about everybody's name on there. So Thank you to all of you who are going to be in there this summer. Look at all. It takes a village, as they say. Also, of course, VBS is this week. So thank you to all of you who will be uh, chipping in there as well. It's going to be, uh, going to be a great week. So uh, let's give them hey, one more hand. Thank you, all of you. This, look at that. That's this summer. That group of folks, I think we just about got everybody. There you go. So why Revelation. Well, let me tell you a story. You may know the story of the, the early part of the, the history of the early church, how for the first three centuries after the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, how that early church was persecuted mercilessly by the Roman Empire from uh, emperors and bad guys, sort of like this guy, like, like Nero, he's a bad guy, yeah. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, whom you may know is the guy from Gladiator, if you've seen that movie, he wasn't really a good guy either. He hated Christians. Uh, Diocletian, who's another really, really bad guy. Uh, they, these men invented new ways of, of torture. They would pack Christians, for example, as tightly into a room as they could and watch them suffocate. 
to death. Some they would cover in, in raw animal skins and send them out to be uh, chased and eaten and devoured by a, a predator. Some they, they sent out into the winter and to be frozen to death. There's a, there's a, a, a picture of one of the early moments of that. And, and these things these men did because the beasts and the gladiators grew weary of killing Christians. And they had to invent new ways. Uh, The only crimes committed by these Christian people, well, they refused to call Caesar God. They refused to to offer uh, sacrifices to the Roman gods. They were murdered, in other words, for being unpatriotic, disloyal to the state, being a threat to their culture. And so in the middle of their suffering, you can see John references their suffering. The book of Revelation was given by Jesus through John to the early church. And so for those 300 long and, and brutal years, the church was, was persecuted, but it grew from around 120 people in, in a prayer room in Jerusalem to being nearly 5% of the Roman Empire, even though their faith was illegal. And for those 300 years until their faith was legalized, they hung on to not only the belief that Jesus Christ was Lord, but they believed, they hung on to the belief that there was another life, another life, another world that was to come as real as this one. See, they, they hung on to, in the middle of their pain, they hung on to not only the Gospels, but they hung on to the book of Revelation. And when they held on to the book of Revelation, when they held on to the world that was to come, they died heroically, bravely. They brought many skeptics to faith because Romans, the Romans had no answer for death. But Christians did. Christians did. How many of us would like to handle our lives better now? Yeah, I think I would. How many of us would maybe like to handle death when it comes even better then? Well, then we need the book of Revelation. We need the source of this, the martyr's courage. So let's, let's take a look and begin right here in chapter one and ask the question, well, what does chapter one show us? We need to face and overcome any situation in life just like they did. We need, we're going to see three things. First, we need an alpha point. We need the one who was. Second, we need an omega point, the one who is to come. And finally, we need a life that connects the two, or we need the one who is. The one who is. Let's begin here. Number one, look at uh, what we mean uh, when we say alpha point, alpha point. So what's fascinating uh, about the book, as you may know, is that while we have letters, uh, right, in the New Testament from uh, many people, Peter, James, John, for example, uh, this is the only book that, uh, that contains letters written by Jesus himself. It's amazing. So what will Jesus say that can give people being slaughtered by the thousands courage to keep going. Will he come and say, what's up, y'all? Man, how's it going, guys? Hmm? Or would he say, you know, I I know you guys are suffering and and dying for me, but but you, you, you got it all wrong about me. You know, you've been worshiping me as God, but I'm only just an option. I'm just one of many, you know. The Romans have their gods. The Greeks have their gods. Pick and choose if you like. I'm just a nice guy. And a pretty good teacher. Remember the parables? Those were some good stuff right there, right? But anyway, just wanted to come and tell you, uh, you're suffering. I'm a nice guy, so just keep dying for me, a nice guy. No. Here are Jesus' first words in the book. What will he do? He will, first of all, double down on his claim to divinity. Look at this, verse 8. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, in case you missed it. The Almighty. 
What's he saying? He's saying this. If you want to make it through any situation in life, you've got to have him like this. You've got to have him like this in your life. That's what you need. You need him as your alpha and your omega, who is, was, and is to come. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Many of us, for example, we come to church. Maybe you're here today. You come to a community group or, or you're checking Mosaic out because, you know, you're looking for some friends. That's good. Glad you're here. That's awesome. Are you looking for some inspiration because stuff's not going well? I'm sorry things aren't going well, but again, I'm glad you're here. Maybe you feel like you need some practical help for a sticky situation. But regardless of the reason, let me tell you, I'm so glad you're here today. But what I want you to see is that right here, Jesus is giving you the most inspirational thing he can. He is giving you the most practical thing he can. He's giving you the first step out of any trouble you may be in. He's giving you a starting point. He's giving you a beginning point. He's giving you himself the alpha point, the first point. He says the place where you got to begin in life, he says, is me. It's himself. It's Jesus. Now, I don't have all the time to go into all the reasons why Christians have said for now, you know, centuries that that claim is legitimate. And I don't have time to get into all the evidence that Christians would point to as meaningful for that statement. That's for another sermon, which you may or may not get in the course of the series. But let's just put it like this. If someone's followed the logic here, if someone came into this world appeared to live a morally perfect, flawless life, seemed to have control over the weather, over the elements, plant life, over sickness, disease, human tissue, the human body, had all that power and yet used it to serve everyone, then died, came back to life, and what's more, he predicted that would happen. Those are pretty fair grounds for believing that person has a legitimate claim to be God, the alpha point. But instead of trying to prove this point is true today, I want to just quickly, quickly give you two reasons why you should not only want Jesus as your alpha point, not only want what he says to be true, but what you get if that statement is true. All right, fair enough. I could give you 10. I only got time for two. I literally had to cut out a bunch of these. All right, here we go. First of all, you've got to see Jesus as our alpha point gives us a basis for ethics. You say, man, that was so anticlimactic right there. Holy cow, ethics. I came to learn about ethics. No, this is a really big deal. Let me show you why this is a big deal. Man, you may or may not have heard of by the name of Dr. Peter Singer. He's the chair, I believe, of bioethics at Princeton University. Princeton, right? He's written for years that not only, catch this, you may know this, that not only are the lives of healthy animals worth more than the lives of sick or deformed babies, he argues vociferously, million dollar word for you, argues that parents should have the right to end the lives of babies they don't want to and give them up to a month to do so after birth. Here's what he wrote in his book, Practical Ethics. He wrote, quote, newborn human babies have no sense of their existence over time. So killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person. If, that was, if it was in the best interests of the baby, I don't know how he figured that out, And of the family as a whole, he concludes this way, I don't want my health insurance premiums to be higher so that infants who can experience zero quality of life can have expensive treatments. No. Princeton, right? Yeah. What's he saying? Peter Singer is saying, by contrast to the New Testament, that human happiness is the alpha point right? Human happiness is the alpha point. The starting point for your decisions. If a parent is unhappy with their newborn or certain newborns cause him unhappiness, 
we should be allowed to end the lives of those that we don't want. So if human happiness is your alpha point, all right, you may say, you know, I've come in, Morgan, you know, I'm a skeptic today. I think that, you know, my philosophy in life is, you know, Y-O-L-O, YOLO, you know, you do you, whatever's good for you. If that's your alpha point, you've really got no defense against what Peter Singer is saying. You see that, all right? You may have an emotional response to it. You may debate some of the particulars, maybe not like it, but you've got no real defense against the claim that parents should be allowed to end the lives of newborns they don't want. But if Jesus is the beginning, and in the beginning he made all things, made all lives, and put his image upon human beings, then all babies inside the womb and out bear his image, and to put that to death is to attack and put to death the image of God. And the early church, let me tell you, knew this because Jesus was their alpha point, and they stood up against the infanticide that the Romans practice and that singers are arguing for. And they eventually ended and outlawed the practice as well as the gladiatorial contest because they value the image of God, the Imago Dei, wherever they found it, young and old. Let me ask you, is Jesus the beginning of your ethics, of your choices? Can he critique you, critique me? Does, does our life, does it begin with Jesus or is he just an extension of our personal brand, right? You see, the starting point for everything, for our, our finances, how we handle our sexuality, see, making him the alpha point is the most practical thing you can do. It's the first thing. It gives us a basis for ethics. Secondly, Jesus is the alpha point also gives us, this is crucial, the basis for social activism. Social activism. Now, there's a fascinating book came out not too long ago uh, written by an atheist author named David Chappell, not Dave Chappelle, different guy. All right, David Chappell. You may get him quoted later in another sermon, I'm just saying. David Chappell, and this book is called A Stone of Hope. And again, he took a look, at, a different kind of look, at the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And here is what he found. Here's an analysis. Quote, while white liberals disliked segregation, they did almost nothing about it. Again, talking about social activism. They expected it to go away on its own. They were optimistic about human nature, the power of reason, the efficacy of education, and the inevitability of social progress. But black activists, deeply rooted in biblical faith, knew that power corrupts, that the human heart was sinful. The story of the civil rights movement is not then the triumph of liberal ideas of gradual progress, not at all. Northern liberals' faith in the power of human reason to overcome prejudice was at odds with the civil rights movement's goal of immediate change. But the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament lifted African-American activists to unprecedented solidarity and self-sacrifice. Black leaders believed, as the Hebrew prophets believed, that they had to stand apart from society and institute dramatic changes to force an unbelieving world to abandon its sinful ways, the sin of segregation. It's good stuff right there, yeah. Now again, this is an, an atheist saying this. What was his, his conclusion? His conclusion was that the, the only reason things changed was because the black activists didn't believe, as the, he says the white liberals did, that people were inherently good and would do what was right if given enough access to education, resources, and time. No, he points out rightly that the black activist basis for change in the world began with the, the word of God, with whom Jesus, people, Christians would call, excuse me, Jesus. And since the word of God says all people are fallen, need to repent right now, these activists, the point is, had a rock solid, unconquerable basis 
for genuine social activism. Let me ask you, what would your alpha point be for creating change in society, huh? Would it be relativism, right? I mean, one truth is as good as another. Well, then why should people change, right? Just because you say they should. Why should other people believe your non-racist ideas over perhaps their racist ones, huh? Got no real answer. About 400 years ago or so, a really nice French philosopher, aren't all French philosophers really nice, a man by the name of Rene Descartes, he came along and said, he said, here is the alpha point for humanity. He said, it's this, I think, therefore I am. The Latin famously, cogito ergo sum, right? He said, it's the individual self as the starting point. But Jesus is saying, no, no, he says, I am Therefore you are. I am, therefore you are. I created you. I created all things. I'm the alpha point. I'm the beginning of all things. And if you have me, he's saying, you can make it through anything. That's number one, our alpha point. Secondly, though, of course, the verse doesn't just stop there. Verse eight, Jesus goes on to tell us he's not only the alpha, but what? The omega. Not only do you have to have him as alpha, you have to have him as omega. In other words, your ultimate point The ultimate purpose for your life, let me put this statement in the form of a question. Is Jesus the means to an end in your life, or is he the end itself? Ask again, is Jesus the means to an end in your life, or is he the end itself? Is he what you use to maybe get the life that you want? Or is he the life that you want? And there's a difference. And let me show you what a difference this makes specifically when you suffer. When Carrie and I were first in vocational ministry, we worked for this enormously powerful, really influential pastor. Things happening all around us. Things happen in this church. Lots of legit stuff, legit fruit. But over time, we noticed that he sort of seemed to actively dislike us. Us, you know, me, right? I mean, kept us at arm's length, said publicly cruel, disparaging things about me in particular. This was a pattern of his. He did this to lots of people for sure. Wasn't the only one. But people would point out, I appeared to be this like favorite target of his. That's how special I was, right? And he was working behind the scenes to actively discredit me among other things. And of course, this was all, whoops, sorry about that. It's just adjusting it. Sorry about that. I'll get it go to the University of Houston, had a degree in media. <laughs> oh, there you go. Apparently I didn't study, did not study hard enough. We're getting in here. All right, here we go. All right. Everybody give him a hand right there. That's called a save. <laughs> Saving the sermon. All right. All right. Saying I can see why that guy didn't like you. Right? Can't even handle the mic. All right. Now, what do you do with that, right? That kind of situation. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe that is you. What do you do with someone who publicly humiliates you, takes your ideas, campaigns against you, slices up your reputation for reasons that don't make sense? What do you, what do, you do with that? A woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliott, you may know the name, and her husband Jim, they were missionaries to a, to a native tribe in Ecuador in the 50s. And when Jim landed his plane there, and attempted to make contact with that tribe, they speared him to death on the spot, murdered him, leaving Elizabeth a widow and pregnant with their first child. And 
<clears throat> result of that, she, I mean, you think about what do you do with that? Well, she wrote a fictionalized account of her life, what she went through. The book was called No Graven Image, in which a young woman like herself named Margaret goes to Ecuador. M- Margaret works on translating the Bible. While she's there, things go horribly wrong. She accidentally kills the only fruit, the only person who's responded to the gospel, this man helping her translate the Bible, and all her work is lost. That's how the book ends. And Elizabeth Elliot, through the mouth of Margaret, wrote about what it felt like to lose everything. She said this, her conclusion, God, if he was my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, if he was God, he had freed me. When she wrote that, Christian leaders at the time hated it. One seminary president even bragged he had worked to keep it off the bestseller list. Why? He said, God doesn't work like that. But I think Elliot was way closer to the truth of who God is and was, what Revelation says, because in that moment, for her, he was becoming her omega point. Can you see that? Her ending point, her point for living. God ceased to be a means to an end of just her success or even getting the Bible translated as amazing as that is. He became, living for him became her end in itself. And let me tell you, right here, you today, you've got an omega point. Everybody's got that. You got something you're living for. Everybody's got something uh, that's their end point. And if it's not God, everything else is just a means to get it. Some of you may remember a, a, a few years ago, a number of, of years ago, there was a famous Major League Baseball player in the 1980s, and he had this successful career. But uh, in the game before his team went to the World Series, he was the, the pitcher. He had two strikes, two outs on the batter, and he did one pitch, and he gave up a home run. His team lost. They never got back to the same spot again. He was so devastated, so shattered by that moment, that within three years, he was out of the game. And one night, he took a gun, and he ended his own life. No history of mental illness, no whispers of of depression, just reports from those close to him that that experience of giving up the home run crushed him. What was his end point? Again, hard to say. Only God truly knows. But it's possible, as it was possible, as I saw with many of the professional athletes that I've known over the course of my life, that their, their name, their career, their success was their end point. Everything was a means of getting it. And if that failed fall, fall, was fallen or crumbled, their life was meaningless as well. Now, it's easy to look at a guy like that and say, well, sure, you know, well, what about us? What about you? What's your end point? Who's God to you? Huh? Who's God to me? Is he, is he my accomplice, right? Or is he my reason for living? You know, that pastor I, I talked about earlier, as it, as it turned out, as you might imagine, was hiding this whole closet full Sin and demons, bad stuff. When his life blew up, it was not only like a bomb going off uh, in the church, it was like this nuclear radioactive thing in the lives of the people that were closest to him. And we saw as a result, it was tragic, divorce after divorce, all kinds of trauma in the lives of people closest to him. But this strange thing happened. Even as we, Carrie and I saw this play out in other people's lives, we realized that we weren't nearly as affected by it as many other people. And here's what we learned. We learned that what felt like rejection to us was really God's protection of us. 
What felt like rejection was actually God's protection. We felt so rejected by that leader, by that person, but the rejection was the best thing that could have happened to us. And you know, along the way, of course, we felt so hurt, so betrayed, so rejected, so wounded by God, right? We couldn't understand the situation. But in the middle of that, we had to make a choice. And you've got to make a choice too, to say, God, you are what we're living for. Your approval is what we're living for. We're not living for his approval, their approval, that person's approval. And each night, Carrie and I would take hands. We would bless him, his family, ministry, children. In the middle of all of it, of course, at first, because we thought God was our accomplice, we thought he betrayed us. Why do we move here? Why do we take the job? Why aren't things working out like we want? We learned. Not our accomplice, right? He hadn't betrayed us. He had only freed us. What felt like rejection was actually his protection. Now, you're saying, what about those other people? I don't know. Remember C.S. Lewis said, God didn't tell you other people's stories, right? He just get to know your own. And therefore, the choice we all have to make is this. Will he be, will Jesus be our omega point, our end point, our destination? Otherwise, oh, it's all going to come apart at the seams sooner or later, this life or the life to come. The grass withers, the flowers will fade, the word of our God stands forever. What do we need to face, handle anything that comes our way? We need, first of all, the one who was. We need our alpha point. We need, second of all, our omega point, the one who is to come. Oh, but we need something else to make it from there uh, to then, from here to there. We need something else to make it right now. And you can tell this is the case because this is who Jesus says he is first. He says, I'm the one who is first. first and last of all, third of all, we need now a life that connects the two. A life that connects the two. Now, Jesus doesn't say, you'll notice, he was just back then or that he will come again one day. He says, I am now. He is. Again, speaking this to whom? He's speaking to John now, to churches now, people being persecuted right now, and to people, us today, right now. What did he give them? What did Jesus give them that helped them to live and die with power? He gave him three things right here in this chapter. I'll move through these briefly. He gave these to John for the churches and for us today. Three things that the writer John sees and experiences that can help us today. Let's take a look at him in turn. First of all, John here, he sees, it says, the clouds. Sees the cloud. Look at verse 7. What does this mean? John says, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Now, one of the main things you're going to see, maybe if you read the book, certainly as we go through it, that the book of Revelation, more than any other book in the New Testament, really references, it quotes the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. The book of Revelation is almost like a, like a math equation. Old Testament plus New Testament equals revelation, which is why the book comes last in the Bible. And of course, this verse is no exception. Sorry for getting in the weeds, but it's important. This verse is a composite of a verse in Daniel and another verse in Zechariah. And John pulls these together, puts his own words in there to talk about something that he sees. He's describing what he sees. What he sees is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Jesus came once. He will come again. But what you have to see here is what John's audience would have understood, which is that when he comes again, Jesus brings, here's the word, judgment with him. 
Jesus brings judgment with him. That's what the clouds are. The clouds are representative of the glory of God. Throughout the Bible, it's representative of the Shekinah glory of God, the weighty, untouchable, unbreathable, unbearable glory of God, which, and when it ever shows up, always causes an earthquake, fire, lightning, thunder, storms. It's showing you that human sinfulness and the holiness of God cannot coexist. The clouds, the glory The judgment of God. And you can see this is judgment. This is what's happening. Because what happens? What's this saying? This this is saying that Jesus isn't coming. It's not saying he's coming. Like the old Pentecostal song says, sorry to burst your bubble. He's not coming on the clouds. right? Like he's riding a Harley right down to earth. Like, man, he's just on a horse. There's a horse part later. But that's not what it's talking about here. He's not riding on a Harley. Not cruising right down the highway in his classic, you know, car. No, but the translation says here, and it gets it right. Jesus is coming. It says what? With the clouds. With the clouds. He's bringing the clouds with him. The clouds of judgment are coming with him. And every eye will see him. And for those who have rejected him, it says they will mourn. Now, say, Morgan, I didn't feel real inspirational. Why would you say I need this doctrine of judgment day, of the second coming, to help me live a life that could make it through anything? Oh, here's why. Because if you know that God's going to judge then, you can drop the sword of judgment right now. Because if you know, like my old southern grandma used to say to me, me, she said, child, don't you love it when your grandmother says child, child, nobody gets away with nothing. Right. It's the Bible right there. You can live knowing that God sees, God knows he'll bring all things to account. And so do those who are being lit on fire to light the way to the Roman gardens. Jesus is saying, one day I'm coming with the clouds. Your sacrifice is not in vain. One day I will return with the glory of God and put all things right. I'll make every injustice to be just. I will be your judge and the judge of all the earth. Listen, if you're a Christian today, can you say with John, look, I see him coming with the clouds. He's going to return. I can drop the sword now and live at peace. The doctrine of the second coming, Jesus Christ is so powerful. But John doesn't just see the clouds. Second, he sees the lampstands. I love this. Let's look at this briefly. Verse 12, he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I probably would too, right? Alone on an island. Who's that? What's that? All right. When I saw, excuse me, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest, hair on his head, white like wool. His eyes were blazing fire, feet glowing, bronze like in a furnace. His voice sounded like rushing waters. What's all this talking about? Uh, African-American pastor in Philadelphia by the name of Tom Skinner. Uh, he, was, he pastored there for many years. And he said that when he was growing up in the church, and maybe this was you, most of the images he ever saw of Jesus were like those Eurocentric drawings, right? Usually ones where Jesus looked like he had been using some really great moisturizer, right? <laughs> Where, you know, he just like, he stepped out of a salon, had never done like a day of work in his life with like 135 pounds, right? And, and, and Tom Skinner said, this Jesus, Jesus, this guy is supposed to be the savior of the world. He said he wouldn't last 15 minutes in my neighborhood. <laughs> but he said, the Jesus in Revelation, he said, that guy could make it. Now, he said, if the Jesus of Revelation is really who he is and the one who, who is returning, he said, if that's the case, he says, my neighborhood wouldn't last 15 minutes and neither would yours, no matter, no matter where you live. 
See, that's the, that's the kind of power being described here. Look at, who, look at who Jesus is, really. Eyes full of fire. White hair to show. Man, he's infinitely wise. He knows what's up, right? So you better not mess with him. His voice, is, it's, like, it's got the power of the ocean. It. His feet are glowing. This is a little different, isn't it, than the Jesus from Supercuts, right? But what's Jesus doing here? He says he's walking among what? The lampstands. What are those? The book tells you. It says the seven lampstands, lampstands are churches. This is showing you Jesus is walking among his churches. But again, how is he walking? I mean, back to his feet. He keeps talking about his feet. What's up with his feet? They're glowing like they've been in what? It says a furnace. And what's he called here? What does John say? He says, he says someone like a son of man. What's happening? Oh, this is a reference to the book of Daniel written centuries earlier where King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Another evil ruler and another pluralistic empire with all kind of false gods that also persecuted the people of God through three men in a furnace who would not bow to him or his despotic rule or laws which outlawed the worship of the one true God, just like Rome was doing in John's day. And so do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said when he saw those three men in the furnace? He said, I see a fourth man. And he says the same thing verbatim that John says here. Nebuchadnezzar says, I see someone like a son of man. Someone like a son of man. Oh, this is showing you. Jesus is saying, I'm back, baby. You know, it was Jesus suffering in the furnace with those men in Daniel. And his feet are glowing now. His feet are glowing to show the people, not just individuals, but the church, us today. He's saying, I'm walking around in the middle of my people. I haven't abandoned you. I was with those men then when they suffered in their furnace. And I'm with you suffering in your furnace of suffering today. Now, imagine if you knew that. Hmm? You knew it deep down. Imagine if you knew, you saw, like John saw, Jesus is with me in what I'm going through. Sometimes it's hard to see, isn't it? Hard to feel. Sometimes you need a voice like John's, maybe mine, maybe your spouse is a friend, reminding you that the ancient of days is with us. Not just with you as an individual, but with us, the lampstand of the church, right? When we gather, listen, I believe this happens. I believe it's happening now. I pray for this every single week. I pray that Jesus would walk among us. You know why I pray that? Because of Revelation right here. It gives me faith to believe he's walking among us, touching lives. Listen, you can't get that at home. Good stuff happens at home, right? You can't get that on a podcast. Podcasts are great. Love podcasts. Jesus is showing you, I walk around in my church, right, for us to strengthen us. John saw the clouds. He sees the lampstands. But most of all, finally, he gets the touch, the touch. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Oh, this is astonishing. Do you know where John was when this happened? Oh, he was on the island of Patmos, sort of this ancient Alcatraz. And he was exiled there because other attempts to end his life had failed. And so Rome stuck an old man on a rock in the middle of an ocean. Real dangerous guy, right? So he couldn't escape. And yet Jesus walks across the water once more and touches him. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, don't be afraid, John. 
I'm alive. I love you. He said, I was dead. I died for you, John. I died for you. And a matter of fact, he says, I own death. I'm like the boss of death now. Don't be afraid anymore. And so what those suffering people needed to see is what we needed, that nothing can stop Jesus from working in our life, right? Not a prison guard, not an island prison. Jesus walks into John's life, and while he does not remove John from the situation, his touch is what enables John to endure, to make it. He says, endurance and perseverance in suffering. Let me ask you, if you experience this in your life, the touch of Jesus, let me tell you, in your darkest hour, right, it's a light when all other lights go out. Or, or how about this? Have you allowed him even to touch your life in the first place? Some of you may say, uh, no, I haven't. I'm afraid if I come to Jesus, what he might, might say to me. Listen, you already know what he's going to say. He's going say to the, say to you, like he said to John, don't be afraid. I love you. Don't be afraid. I died for you. Don't be afraid. I'm living for you. I'm before all. I will end all. History's headed toward me. And I, you've got me in your life right now. Look and see. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Turn and see him walking among us today. Ask for his touch in your life. Allow him to speak to you. Remember the old words. I love these. He's bubbled up in my, in my spirit this week. Oh, how he loves you and me. You know that song? Come on, sing it with me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Come on. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. It's Revelation 1. It's here for us. Let's go to him now.